ever have someone spit in your face and try and tell you that it's raining? Well, that's about what the size of it is with respect to what happened last November with the election. We're being told by people who stole the election that there was nothing wrong with the election, and it's all our imagination, that everything we saw, everything we've been able to uncover, everything we've been able to tabulate, is simply a figment of our imagination and never really happened. Uh, dissatisfaction with President Trump was such that they ousted him from office and elected Joe Biden with over 80 million votes, an unprecedented number of votes that no one has amassed. There's only a few problems with that. The problems are that most presidents, when people are dissatisfied with them, wind up getting fewer votes in their re-election bids than they did in their election bid, a la Barack Obama, who received three million fewer votes in his re-election than he did in his election, albeit he still won. In Donald Trump's case, he received 12 million more votes than he received in his election. That's right. His re-election bid in 2020 garnered him more votes than any other presidential candidate in history up until that time, except, of course, aside from Joe Biden, who received ostensibly 80-some-odd million. So who are these dissatisfied people that didn't vote for Trump? That's what we're trying to find out. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another episode of the NPO podcast, National Preview Online. If you have not already subscribed to the show, please do so. You can do so in one of three easy ways. You can either go to the iTunes App Store, the Google Play Store, depending which device you use, search out the NPO podcast and click subscribe. You'll be informed of every new episode that is uploaded. You can leave comments and reviews, and we desperately need both, as they will spirit the show to the top of the ratings and cause the show to grow and enable us to give you greater offerings. As an alternative, you can download the free Podbean app in either of those two locations, and you can subscribe that way. Either way, you'll always be fully informed of whenever a new episode is uploaded, and you can always leave comments and reviews. As always, we encourage you to email us with your comments and observations, and if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, uh, please do so. And I will tell you that there was one listener who did email me with such a request, and I will announce that a little bit later on uh, in the program. For the time being, getting back to this question of the voting. So people want you to believe that people were dissatisfied with Trump. So if people were so dissatisfied with him, I'd like to know where these additional 12 million votes came from. And I'd like to know where these votes that Joe Biden, who's never been able to get out of a primary, let alone get a presidential nomination or even come close to getting one, how did he get all these votes? That remains to be seen. And how is it that the total number of votes cast in many of these six swing states exceeds the number of voters registered in those states? Now, there's been a lot of chicanery, particularly in the state of Pennsylvania, and justices, we now know three justices on the Supreme Court, wanted to hear those cases in Pennsylvania, and they were prevented from doing so, probably by Just Justice Roberts and some of the others. There is no question that states have an absolute right to be heard by the United States Supreme Court when settling a dispute with another state. It is the court 
of original jurisdiction. It is a court of last resort. It is the only court that can hear a dispute between two states. It's codified in our Constitution, and yet this was not done. And now we're learning that an independent audit in Maricopa County, Arizona, has revealed some very, very interesting irregularities, very startling irregularities. This came from a letter from Karen Fan. Karen Fan is the Arizona Senate president. Now, the Arizona Senate is Republican-controlled. She requested Maricopa County officials meet with her next week to resolve issues related to the 2020 election audit, particularly whether someone deleted a main database from the election management system last month. She made this request in a Wednesday letter sent to Jack Sellers, who is the chairman of the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors. Quote, we have recently discovered that the entire database directory from the D drive of the machine EMS primary has been deleted, Fan wrote, claiming the missing directory is covered by the Senate's subpoena, which allows the group to seize election materials for the audit. The senator added in the letter, this suggests that the main database for all election-related data for the November 2020 general election has been removed. Can you please advise as to why these folders were deleted and whether there were any backups that may contain the deleted folders? In a letter to the Maricopa Board of Supervisors, Fan said, I am writing to seek your assistance and cooperation in the resolution of three serious issues that have arisen in the course of the Senate's ongoing audit of the returns of the November 3rd, 2020 general election. And she outlined the concerns. And this is interesting because Democrats are assiduously, assiduously opposing this audit. They're doing everything they can to try and stop the audit because they're trying to say that the people who are auditing are not really uh, qualified to audit. Um, they've no, they have no auditing experience. This is being undertaken by the state Senate of Arizona itself. So here are the concerns that Fan outlines in her letter. Remember, Ms. Fan is the head of the Republican-controlled Arizona State Senate. Maricopa County attorneys have refused to produce virtual images of the routers used in connection with the general election. Maricopa County has refused to provide the passwords necessary to assess vote tabulation devices. As the audit has progressed, the audit contractors have become aware of apparent omissions, inconsistencies, and anomalies relating to the county's handling, organization, and storage of ballots. No chain of custody documentation for the ballots. The bags in which the ballots were stored were not sealed. And the audit team has found at the bottom of the boxes, of many boxes, cut seals of the type that would have sealed a ballot bag. Most ballot boxes were sealed merely with regular tape and not secured with a tamper-evident seal. Many instances when there is a disparity between the actual number of ballots contained in a batch and the total written on the pink slip report. In most cases, the number on the slip is greater than the number of ballots in the batch. And lastly, deleted databases recently discovered 
that the entire database directory from the D drive of the machine EMS primary has been deleted. Now, you can say it's premature to make a decision as to what the fallout of all this is. But for an election that was so above board and there were no improprieties and nothing is wrong, why are people going to such great lengths to obstruct an investigation into something that they seem to be confident is going to show that there is nothing wrong? There's only one reason for that. They know something's wrong. And what's worse, they're going to try and get away with it again because H.R. 1 and the Senate bill that's been proposed, but particularly that House bill, aims to make national law out of what was done in those six swing states. And I'm speaking about Pennsylvania, Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Georgia. That's exactly what's happening here. They're trying to take that and make it the rule for all 50 states, which would be in direct violation of the United States Constitution. Now, I explained this the other day. I explained this a couple of weeks ago, or actually last week, I think, when I was talking about how the Democrats were going to go about this. It's all related. The court packing plan. The Supreme Court could stop this. Even if they were to pass this law, the Supreme Court, if it gets to it, could say it's unconstitutional and they can't do it. Because the Constitution, in effect, means whatever the Supreme Court says it means. Now, it doesn't in actuality, but in practicality, that's how it works. So if you can pack the court with seven uh, additional, or four additional justices to have a 7-6 majority, that 7-6 majority is going to say the Supreme Court means whatever it needs to mean in order for you to pass this unconstitutional law. So we have serious problems, and President Trump commented on it today. You can read his comments in many places. I'm not going to go into it now because uh, it's not necessary. But to say that this is over uh, is incorrect. I think this thing is just beginning. Because if these arguments that the Arizona Senate has uncovered have teeth, it's going to have wide-ranging repercussions for all of the chicanery that happened in all of the six states, particularly in Pennsylvania, a state where you have a city, Philadelphia, that has a lengthy reputation for corruption. Now, another matter I would like to cover, uh, we've been covering this quite frequently, is the growing war on law enforcement and on police in this country. The most high-profile case that we've had recently, of course, is the George Floyd case, with the recent conviction of former officer Derek Chauvin in Minnesota State Court. And then I told you last week that in an unprecedented move, the federal government is moving against Chauvin and the other three officers that were with him, who have also been charged by the state of Minnesota uh, in the death of George Floyd. Now, it's almost unprecedented for the feds to move uh, before the state. Now, they did so in a case in New York, uh, the Abner Louima case. They moved before the state of New York, and everybody thought that was a risky move. Because uh, although it's unusual, and although it's not double jeopardy for the feds to try you after the state has tried you, the state constitution of New York does view it as double jeopardy if the feds try you first. They, by their own constitution, are barred from trying you. So if the feds had gone forward and failed to get a conviction, uh, 
those cops would have walked because there would have been no conviction in state court because there would have been no trial. But what happened here in Minnesota is really unprecedented. Usually, when a state matter re, uh, results in a conviction with a potentially lengthy sentence, I mean, Derek Chauvin is potentially facing 40 years, the feds don't move. They only move if there was some infirmity in the state prosecution that resulted in uh, a result that they don't think is in keeping with justice. Now, obviously, the feds must think that the conviction is in keeping with justice, and they have to believe that 40 years is not a trifle sentence. Uh, so I don't know what their motivation is here. But we have some bombshell news going on here in this case. First of all, the judge in the Minnesota State Court has postponed the trial for the three ex-cops in the George Floyd case. It says here in this article from the Epic Times, a Minnesota judge on May 13th delayed the trial of three former police officers who were involved in the arrest of George Floyd in Minneapolis last year. After one of the defense attorneys argued that the medical examiner who performed George Floyd's autopsy was coerced by prosecutors. Now, Hennepin County District Judge Peter Cahill told a pretrial hearing in Minneapolis that he wanted to give time for federal prosecutors to pursue their case against the three men. Now, I have to admit, I'm not familiar with the state constitution of every state in this country. But I'm willing to wager that the state constitution of Minnesota, like New York, also holds that it is unconstitutional to prosecute a person on the same set of facts twice or for the same crime twice, and that they do not recognize the dual sovereignty doctrine that the federal courts recognize when state courts go first and then federal courts get to go second. I'm willing to believe that the judge believes that there's a hint of unfairness and double jeopardy in all of this. And now that he has this cloud that has been raised by the defense attorney about whether the autopsy itself was corrupted, which goes right to the issue of causation, which I discussed numerous times on this podcast, I believe he wants the federal case to play out because the feds can't compel this judge to make this state case go forward. And if the federal prosecutor's get a conviction, then the state is not going to go forward. I guarantee you that the judge will throw it out and probably the prosecutors will withdraw the prosecution. And if they're acquitted after a federal trial, the judge is going to a rule upon motion by the defense attorneys that to prosecute them in state court would constitute double jeopardy. So we're on a very slippery slope here. A lot of things going on, but let's get to the heart of the matter. And there's also other issues of things that were leaked and they wanted uh, discovery about any case where uh, uh, other officers who intervened or were present when an officer was uh, accused of using excessive force, were they charged as accessories and so forth and so on. But the bombshell here is that the lawyer for one of the officers, Officer Thao, alleged that Dr. Andrew Baker, the Hennepin County medical examiner, was directly, this is a quote, and indirectly coerced by the state and its agents into altering Floyd's autopsy report. On May 26, 2020, Dr. Baker told prosecutors that the autopsy, quote, revealed no physical evidence 
suggesting that Mr. Floyd died of asphyxiation and showed no signs of damage to his airways or thyroid cartilage or brain bleeding, bone injuries, or internal bleeding. Findings released to the public three days later and said there were no physical findings that, is, that support a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. But the final autopsy report listed neck compression. Now, I went into this exhaustively on a couple of shows here about the issue of causation. And I'll say it one more time briefly here. There are two prongs when you have a homicide. One, you have to be able to prove that the defendant that you have charged actually engaged in the conduct that you say he engaged in. You have to prove that. Now, in this case, that's not going to be difficult to do because the prosecutors are alleging that Officer Chauvin, or former Officer Chauvin in this case, compressed Mr. Floyd's neck by kneeling on it with his knee. That's easy to prove because we have video footage that show him doing it. So slam dunk on that. But the problem, as I explained, is not proving simply that Officer Chauvin did this. Before you even reach the issue of whether Chauvin did this, the prosecution must first prove to the satisfaction of the jury that the conduct that they intend to prove the defendant engaged in, if engaged in, was the proximate cause of the decedent's death. Now, in this case, Dr. Baker is saying it wasn't. So you can prove from now till the cows come home that Chauvin had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck. If you've got no signs of damage to his airways or thyroid, no signs of brain bleeding, no bone injuries, no internal bleeding, no evidence of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation, not only do you not have evidence of a homicide as a result of Mr. Chauvin's conduct, you don't even have evidence of an assault because you don't have an injury. But they listed neck compression in the final report. So in the intervening time between the time, this I'm coming from this from the article now, and I'm paraphrasing to, degree, uh, to a degree to make it uh, more brief. In the intervening time, Dr. Baker spoke to Dr. Roger Mitchell, former medical examiner of Washington, about the autopsy findings. Dr. Mitchell decided to write an op-ed critical of Baker's findings in the Washington Post. Now, I don't know why he spoke to him. Perhaps that will come out uh, And according to the filing from Thau's lawyer, this is what we're getting. Mitchell later called Baker again to let him know that he did this. In this conversation, Mitchell said, you don't want to be the medical examiner who tells everyone they didn't see what they saw. You don't want to be the smartest person in the room and be wrong. Said there was a way to articulate the cause and manner of death that ensures you are telling the truth about what you are observing and via all of the investigation. Mitchell said neck compression has to be in the diagnosis. Why? Why does neck compression have to be in the diagnosis? Because we saw neck compression? 
That's like saying, I have to put a gunshot in the diagnosis of the death because we have a film that shows an officer discharging his firearm, but we have no evidence that the bullet struck the decedent. In fact, we know that the bullet struck uh, a wooden post next to the decedent. The fact that he fired the gun doesn't mean that we have to put in a gunshot wound as part of the cause of death because there is no gunshot wound. We don't have to put neck compression in as the cause of death if examination of Mr. Floyd's corpse and his neck and the tissues of his neck show that there's no damage to his neck. Because if there's no damage to his neck, this neck compression is a non-issue. And I've said this from day one, that this was the infirmity in this case. And now we have hard evidence that a lot of people were exerting some pressure on Dr. Baker to change this. Now, what the attorney here uh, for Officer Tao is stating is that what Mitchell Oh, then it said that state prosecutors let, later met with this Dr. Mitchell, former uh, medical examiner of Washington. Now, what Mitchell did amounts to coercion, which is a crime under Minnesota law, as state prosecutors, quote, knew that a potential expert witness had coerced the state's main expert witness, the only expert to perform the physical autopsy in the case of State versus Tau the former officer's lawyer, Bob Paul Charge. In other words, now it's getting clear. This guy, Mitchell, was going to be caused as a potential expert witness, probably by the state or someone else, to try and bolster a, a, a finding that there was neck compression here. So this is a crime under Minnesota state law. So this judge, Judge Cahill, is sitting back and letting this thing play out. In the meantime, he says, look, I think there's a lot of very queer things going on here. So maybe we'll just let the feds go first and let the chips fall where they may. Now, Dr. Baker's office, the medical examiner's office for the city of Minneapolis, has declined to comment, citing this pending investigation. Frank, the assistant attorney general, called the allegations bizarre. The state plans to file a complete response in one week, he said on May 12th. But isn't this interesting? After all I told you in this podcast on multiple occasions in speaking about the George Floyd case, that now we have this little tidbit of information come to the fore. Now, the Attorney General uh, Flank, Frank, his name is here, uh, he can call these allegations bizarre all he wants. If Dr. Baker or anybody else can substantiate this conversation, this coercion on the part of Dr. Mitchell, telling him, you don't want to be the person to say that people didn't see what they saw, he's not saying that at all. He's not saying, Dr. Baker, in his initial autopsy, that Mr. Chauvin's knee was, wasn't on Mr. Floyd's neck. Obviously, it was. He's saying that it's of no consequence, because I find no damage to the man's neck as a result of his knee being on it. So we have a serious problem when people are being coerced to produce a result that people have already decided they want. This rings very true with me. I've seen this sort of thing before. Uh, and it's the result of people who have already decided where they want to end up and are working their way backwards in their reasoning. So I, for one, am going to be watching this and I will be reporting it to you 
as soon as there's a resolution on this issue. So just realize that no matter how slam dunk and clear things may seem to be initially, you have to take a step back and look. In fact, many of the things that I'm suggesting right now that I'm pointing out to you were, as I told you in a collateral case when we're talking about police brutality, were things cited by the U.S. attorneys who decided not to pursue, and the attorney general, who decided not to pursue charges against Officer Pantaleo. Because although there was video footage of Officer Pantaleo's arm in contact with Mr. Um, Oh, it's going to come to me now. I'm getting a brain freeze now, trying to just think of Eric Garner, with Mr. Garner's neck for about 15 seconds. And Mr. Garner did say, I can't breathe. He said, I can't breathe about 11 times. But all 11 of those times were after Officer Pantaleo had broken off contact with Mr. Garner's neck. So there's no damage to his neck, and he clearly was breathing. His death was from some other reason. That neck, was, that neck to arm or arm to neck contact was merely incidental contact, which did take place during the struggle, but had no bearing on his death. And they felt that these factors made it very difficult to try and sustain any conviction of a civil rights charge against Officer Pantaleo, and they begged off. Now, this case, equally tragic, man is dead, but you have a serious problem with causation, and it's not going to go away. And it's going to be an issue on appeal. So we'll be tracking this. Now, before we go today, I, I did allude at the beginning of the show that I had an email from a listener that wanted me to cover a certain topic. So either the next episode or one very shortly thereafter is going to be addressing the corporate woke culture that seems to be gripping American corporations as they fall victim to political pressure and seem to be bending over backwards to engage in nonsense to appease people who are nothing more than racially motivated shakedown artists in an effort to try and remake this country and change public policy the way we live our lives on a daily basis. And I think that will prove to be very, very interesting. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury. <laughs>